to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please turn to Job chapter 26. um, Actually, Job chapter 25, which is only a few verses. So we're going to start there. Job chapter 25. So the last two chapters, we saw Job complaining to God. And I think we can all kind of relate to that. We've probably had our share of complaining to God over the course of our relationship with him. Uh, usually it's because we don't quite understand what he's doing. And we just, it, it comes kind of naturally to us to complain when we're confused, when we don't know what's going on. And so Job, we saw him complaining here to God. And he complained about three main things. So I want to just do a quick recap. Uh, the first thing he complained about in chapter 23 was that God was hiding from him. Do you ever have that sense that God is maybe hiding from you? Because you call out to him, you pray, and there's no response. And you don't know what God is doing kind of in the background um, to answer that prayer. Um, but you don't sense him there, sense his presence. And in Job 23... Um, Verses 1 through 3, Job says, Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. He wanted that personal, um, sort of that meeting with God, and he could not find that. And, um, and we've, we've all been there. And, um, you know, we've always said that if you're, Having trouble finding God, it's usually you who moved, not God. He's always there. And maybe you just need to get back to what you've, you've done in the past and bring you back into that relationship. God is everywhere. And he's even in the midst of our struggles. Um, and he's there to comfort us and to lift us up, especially in those tough times in our lives. And then he complained that God was scaring him. And sometimes I think we can, we can probably relate to that too. That um, that this is, something's going on in your life, and and you sense that uh, for some reason God, you're fearful of God, and he he writes in twenty in Job uh, twenty three verses thirteen through fifteen. He said, "But he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does, for he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence." When I consider this, I am afraid of him. You know, Job looked at his circumstances, right? Like a lot of times we do. We look at our circumstances and we say, well, God is all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. And yet look at the situation I find myself in. So it could sometimes bring that, that, that unhealthy fear of God. We should have a healthy fear of God in that we revere him, we respect him, we're in awe of him. But there's that also that unhealthy fear um, that's, that's something that um, takes away our peace. And God wants to give us a sense of peace 
in his, um, in his presence. In chapter 24, we read about Job's third complaint, that God was confounding and confusing him. And again, we can relate. You know, that's why I love this book. Job is kind of bare. He lays it all out there. And his emotions are kind of out there for us to say, yeah, I, I, I sense that sometimes. I sense um, fear of God. And sometimes, God, you confuse me. I, I don't know what's going on. We look at the state of the world, right? And we, uh, we see the injustices that occur all, all over the world. And we wonder, wh- why would God allow such things? So sometimes we can, we can also look out and see and be confused at that. It can definitely bring confusion because we try to reconcile, right, the state of the things uh, that are going on in the world and maybe sometimes in our lives with a gracious, loving God. And sometimes that's difficult to do. But it's exactly that love and grace that allows human beings to make choices, right? Sometimes bad choices, but they're allowed to do that nonetheless. And Job challenges his listeners in chapter 24. At the end of chapter 24, he says, Now if it is not so, who will prove me a liar? And who will make my speech worth nothing? So the final word here, excuse me, of Job to his friends leads us into this interesting response that we find in chapter 25. Chapter chapter 25 is the shortest chapter in the book of Job. It's only six verses. And And it's a response by Bildad, one of Job's friends who we've met before. And it's the last time we hear from any of Job's friends. It's interesting to me that because it's so brief, um, there's been actually speculation by Bible scholars that, uh, that this should have been maybe included with one of the other chapters, or they even question its accuracy in translation. But I look at this, these brief six verses, and I say, this is a, like a last-ditch last effort by Job's friends to put him in his place. And it's weak Right? It's ineffective. It doesn't really do its job. But I look at that this way. We see from the content of the verses that Bildad is not really making any strong points. And his argument is here running out of steam. And then we don't hear from them again for the rest of the book. So we'll just go over these six verses and, and talk about them briefly. And then we'll jump into chapter 26. So it says, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light, his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? Even if the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his, in his sight, how much less man who was a maggot, and a son of man who was a worm. So Bildad, at the beginning here, he says, he answered and said, basically, I'm telling you what I've told you before. For I have no new evidence to add to this case against Job. He's reiterating the points that he's made in previous chapters. But he also proclaims the greatness of God. 
And he also backhandedly kind of supports what Job has already agreed to and said himself in earlier chapters. Verses 1 through 3 talk about God's inherent power. His power is his nature. His omnipotence, his all-knowing, all-powerful, all-supreme attributes are attributes that only God has. And he doesn't get these attributes from somewhere. They are who he is. It's like when the Bible says God is love. Well, it doesn't mean that God demonstrates love, although he does. But it means that God is love. That love is his nature. It's his character. Well, omnipotence is who he is. It's his nature. It's his character. In chapter 9, Job declares God's greatness. It says in verses 1 through 4, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him. One time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. So Job and Bildad here are definitely in agreement. And it's about the greatness of God, the justice of God. And then that question, how can a man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure if he's born of a woman? And of course, you know, thousands of years later, we understand that it's only through Jesus that we are made righteous in God's eyes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's the answer to that question. How can a man be righteous before God? By receiving his son, by accepting his son's sacrifice as sufficient to cover our sins. And Bildad, in these verses, also recognizes God's perfect holiness. So the question is, if a man is born with a sinful nature, how can he ever claim to be righteous before God? And in comparison to the brightness and magnificence of creation, how can a man stand before God? Well, the next chapter, Job attempts to answer these questions and others. So we'll jump into chapter 26, and in verses 1 through 4, it says, But but Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words, and whose spirit came from you? So before Job answers Bildad's questions, he has to have one more opportunity to rebuke Bildad and his friends for their ineffectiveness in comforting him. They they didn't really do anything to bring him comfort in his time of need. Instead of strengthening Job, they actually made him weaker. Instead of giving him wise counsel, they gave him bad advice. And... He says in verse 3, how have you declared sound advice to many? Job not only says, listen, you gave me bad advice, but you've given bad advice to a lot of people. 
I've witnessed it. So in verse 4, he says, To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit came from you? That's an interesting thing that Job is saying here. He's saying here, it's almost as if your words are inspired by Satan instead of God. Or at the very least, Bildad, you're giving me your wisdom and not God's wisdom. See, if it were godly counsel, Job would have received some comfort along the way. And certainly he would have received the truth. And so we see in their arguments, all in those other chapters of his three friends, many times there's no comfort and there's no truth in that. So Job rightly questions, where does this come from? Whose spirit are you speaking for? And it brings, me, brings us back to chapter 4, where Eliphaz, Eliphaz has this strange account that he tells Job about, this spirit that he has this encounter with, that gave him this, this revelation, this wisdom, that he was supposed to share with Job about his situation. If, if you go back, I think they're going to put it up on the screen, Job chapter 4. In verses 12 through 17, it says, Now a word was secretly brought to me. This is Eliphaz talking. And my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from visions of the night, when the deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? So Eliphaz is telling Job about this nightmare that he had where he saw this figure pass before him that gave him this, this wise counsel that he was supposed to share with Job. And, and yet, it's strange. He says, he says here that I, a spirit passed before my face. He does not say God's spirit passed before my face. Because the account here that Eliphaz is giving, it's a bit off. We talked about this when we went over chapter 4. He didn't say that his dream was from the Lord. He didn't say that, uh, that God's spirit passed before him. 1 John 4.1 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into this world. Is this a spirit of God, or is this another spirit? You know, when somebody comes to you with counsel and it sounds, sometimes it sounds a little off, you need to test it against the word of God. Then you will know whether it's true, godly counsel. It's either from God, from Satan, or from our own flawed wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached 
to save those who believe. You know, the world is going to put out their wisdom and their wisdom to maybe solve the world's problems, right? And yet, if it's not godly wisdom, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to accomplish what they want it to do. Not only that, when we put all of our efforts into man's wisdom, you will not find God that way. It says here, in their, their world through wisdom did not know God. You will not find God through man's wisdom. And only by the Holy Spirit can we understand what God is trying to tell us and tell the world. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. What that tells us is that people can, people can read the Bible and not understand it and not be able to rightly apply it because they are not filled with God's Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit from God can rightly discern what the Word of God is saying. Before you read the Bible, we should, be, we should all pray. God, by your Spirit, open my eyes to those things that you want me to see. Help me understand, God, what this passage is about. Because in my natural state, I won't be able to do it. Job, in the next few verses, goes on and continues to declare God's awesome power and might. In verse 5 and 6, it says, The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. So Job here is expressing this truth that God knows and sees everything, even the realm of the dead. And although Job himself had an incomplete understanding of the afterlife, as did most people in the Old Testament, they had an incomplete understanding of that, Job understood that there was another realm, another dimension, where those who have died will dwell. And since God was all-knowing, he must have a complete and perfect knowledge of this mysterious place. And we know that God knows all things, right? Psalm 144, verse 3 says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? The significance to us is that God knows all about everything and all about us individually. That's the personal nature of who God is. He takes notice of us. He takes notice of the living, but he also has perfect knowledge of the afterlife. So I want us to just take a little detour because we have a little time tonight and touch on this word Sheol, which you only see in the Old Testament. That word in verse 6, Sheol, is naked before him. And maybe you're not sure about what that means. So the word Sheol appears in the Bible 65 times. So if you went to your interlinear in your Hebrew, you would find that word Sheol 65 times. But it's not always translated the same way. Sometimes it's actually translated Sheol. Sometimes it's translated the pit. It's translated the pit three times. It's translated the grave 31 times. And it's translated hell 
31 times. So those can be, for us in our English, those can mean very different things, right? The pit, the grave, and hell can mean very different things. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word to describe the realm of the dead is Sheol, the place of the dead or the place where departed souls or spirits go. The New Testament has an equivalent to that word Sheol. It's Hades. And it's a general reference to the place of the dead. And other scriptures in the New Testament talk about Sheol or Hades as a temporary place. A temporary place that souls are kept until the final resurrection. The souls of the righteous will go directly into the presence of God at death. There's a Sheol is kind of broken up into two different compartments. So there's paradise or heaven or Abraham's bosom, right? Which is where believers will go. And there's a distinction between believers and unbelievers made clear in the New Testament and related to this world, Sheol or Hades. But this terminology is only used temporarily. It's an intermediate state. It'll eventually come to an end. And after that, eternity starts for everyone, for all of humanity. Satan, the rebellious angels who followed him, right? He took a third of the angels with him when he rebelled out of heaven. And all unbelievers throughout all human history will eventually be cast permanently for all eternity into the lake of fire. This is that permanent dwelling place for those who reject God's salvation through his son Jesus. Sheol, or Hades, is a temporary place. So when you see the word, sometimes you see it translated hell, you have to look at the context within those verses, within that chapter, to understand exactly what it means. It could mean just the grave, uh, the common grave of where souls are, are, are buried. Or it could be that place spiritually, that place of, um, well, not spiritually, but physically, the place where departed souls and spirits go. So just want to let you know about that word because we're gonna, you're going to see it as you read the Old Testament, and you may get confused over it, but it's worth checking it out so you understand a little bit better what that means. Um, you know, Jesus said in John chapter 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for at the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good or those who believe to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil or those who reject his message to the resurrection of condemnation. So, you know, our question would be, if everyone believed that they live forever, because I think you have, I think there's a lot of people who believe that once your life ends here, that that's it. That there's annihilation and there's nothing after this. And many times they live like that. But if you believed that you lived forever and based on what you did with Jesus in this life would determine where you would go in eternity, I think a lot of people would think differently about how they live their lives. So that was the detour. We'll get back on the main track here. In verses 7 through 9 in Job 26, 
we see Job continuing to describe God's majesty and his power. And he talks about it in relationship to the creation of the universe. It says, he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds. Yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. So we, we know from science, from research, from astronomy, uh, that the planet, that the earth is hung on nothing. It's hanging on nothing, literally. It's freely orbiting around the sun. Nothing holds it up. And there's no up and down in space. You know, we don't think of it. We think of it in that way, but really there's no up or down. We can understand from science that from these verses, Job had a pretty good idea about these things, right? Even given the, the inability of people back then to actually do the research or understand the technology or the science behind it, he had a pretty good idea of what was going on. We know that he's correct. And since the Bible is the inspired word of God, you know, we've seen over the ages, especially when it comes to the prophets, sometimes they write things down that they don't understand. Sometimes they will record something in the scriptures that they don't fully comprehend, but because it, it's inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit, they write it down and we are able to read it thousands of years later. One thing that you know, whatever is in the Bible will always be true. And it will always, I mean, science is catching up with the Bible. We see that. We see that, um, you know, throughout the ages, that eventually it gets around to agreeing with what the Bible says. So, so just know that Job sometimes will, uh, Old Testament writers will sometimes say things that he won't completely understand. He goes on in the next two verses to tell of God's creation on the earth. He says, He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. So we see Job here again trying to describe what the earth's surface looks like or this, the kind of the circular, the curvature right, of the earth. You know, when we look out at the earth, it looks flat. There were many people who believed that the earth was flat at one time. But we know looking at the horizon from several thousand feet above the earth that we can see that the earth is curved. But he says here, he drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Isn't that amazing for someone so many years ago, thousands of years ago, to even understand that? And for us, for people today, they can look out at creation and they can see God's beauty in it. They can see his hand upon uh, the beautiful waters or the trees or the flowers or, or all, of the, all of his creation. We can see his hand upon it. And we know that he's done that to kind of put his fingerprint on things so that we can know that he's there. Romans 1.20 uh, tells us, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, 
even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The Apostle Paul tells us that all of mankind should come to the conclusion that God exists because we look out and we see his fingerprint on creation. We understand there's a creator behind it. And we are without excuse. We are without excuse. Job goes on and talks about God's power in the creation of the seas and the, and the sea creatures. He says in verses 12 and 13, He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens, and his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. God's control over all of creation, over the seas. You know, we, we look at the raw power of a, of a raging uh, river, right? We, we look at a magnificent waterfall like um, Niagara Falls, and we see the power that's in that water. And as humans, we, we maybe understand a little more that we have very little control over things like that. You know, how could we possibly have control over such a powerful thing? But Jesus even demonstrated his power over the seas and the storms. And his his disciples were astonished. Remember the account in the Gospels in Matthew 8. It says in verse 23, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be? that even the winds and the sea obey him. Who can this be? This is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the, the, the Son of God, God incarnate. That's who this could be. But even the majesty of creation or God's power over the elements, as awesome as all of that is, and certainly his disciples saw the proof of that while Jesus was on the earth, even all of those things barely touches the totality of his power. Barely. It, it's hard for us, for us to imagine when we see such miracles take place. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea, talk about pow- power and control over the waters. You know, the the calming of the storm that Jesus performed. All of those things, but they barely touch the totality of who he is. And in verse 14, as we just finish up this chapter, Job says, indeed, these are mere edges of his ways. Just edges, just glimpses. And how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder... Of his power, who can understand? You know, we can only experience, and we maybe have experienced miracles in our life. Many of us have. 
Many of us know people who've been miraculously healed. And even though we see and maybe experience those things, it's only a mere glimpse. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just the edges of who God is. I mean, that's, that's almost hard to, to understand. That's, that's, that's hard to comprehend. And while Job's friends tried to convince him that they knew all there was to know about God, imagine that. Imagine the arrogance of them saying, well, we know this is how God works things. This is how God does, does things. Job, this is why you're going through this suffering. We know God. Well, they don't know God. We don't know God. We don't know him completely. We're urged to read the Bible, to pray for him to reveal himself so that we will know him more and more. But we won't come close to understanding who he really is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul tells us our our last scripture for tonight. For now we see in a mirror dimly. We just see, it's, it's like there's, a, there's something covering. We don't see completely clear. But then face to face, now I know in part, Paul wrote, but then I shall know just as I am known. See, while we're still here on this earth, there are limitations to what we can know about God. And the limitations are, are really on us because we are limited in our humanity, in our intellect even, to knowing who God is completely. Just, there's just no way we could. But there will come a day, there will be that day, when we will know him perfectly, just as he knows us. We will know him as we are known by him. Imagine that. You know, God knows every single thing about you. Every minute detail of who you are. We will know God completely. And that's why in eternity we'll be just, we'll be just singing praises to him all the time. We will finally have a full picture, complete picture of who he really is. And that will just cause us to worship for all eternity. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.